BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And you're listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them, in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond, Eon or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast, where F is for From Russia With Love the second ever James Bond film, which was released in 1963 and starred Sean Connery as 007. My name is Tom Butler, and joining me as we hop on board the Orient Express is a man who always orders red wine with fish. It's Mr. Brendan Duffy. That's slanderous, that. (laughs) And a man who never goes anywhere without 50 gold sovereigns stashed about his person. It's Mr. Tom Wheatley. Hello. Full of enthusiasm, as always. So this is one of our film specials, so we're going to be doing a deep dive into the making of From Russia With Love. We'll be diving into it, um, usually going in chronological order. Sometimes it goes a bit out of sync, but that's how we'll tackle it. But as always, uh, we asked for your reviews, your three-word reviews of From Russia With Love. Um, And what did the people have to say, Brendan? Yeah, there's some good ones. We've got from from Nikolai, Nikolai Quack, who... Is a, friend, is a of regular, friend of the show, yeah. Best fist fight. Can't disagree with that. Yeah. Just trying to think of other fist fights in, in Bond. I mean, there's probably another Connery one that's pretty good, but yeah, it's, it's probably the best yeah. I can think of. The Enigma Griff has put Bond sex tape. Well, that's, Very good. Yes. Yeah. 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 Not a lot of people would draw attention to that, but yeah, good. No, yeah. And it's the final Remi- shot of the re- film as well, isn't it? So Yeah, remind me about that at the end, because I've actually got a bit of information about that, uh, that moment, which I... Uh, I haven't written down, but um, if we try and remember at the end. <laughs> okay, yeah. 
Um, Keir Crozier has put best Bond film. So that's Very a, good. Bold, a bold claim there. It's a bold claim, but um, it's also not the most thoughtful three <laughs> words, is it? <laughs> a lot of people could have that one. You'd say that same about Tomorrow Never Dies. <laughs> That's true. Thanks for your message, though. Um, <laughs> yep, yep, cheers. Friend of the show, Mark O'Connell, has put the espionage blueprint. Ooh. Very good. Very good. Yeah. yeah. Can always rely on Mark. Uh, Daddy O'Donnell has put fabulous Fleming fun. Fa- Did you say fabulous mm-hmm. or fabulous? Fabu- fabulous. <laughs> fabulous. Fabulous Fleming fun. So- Absolutely fabulous. <laughs> That's a tongue twist. That's not a three-word review, is it? That's just to trip me up. <laughs> Brock Richardson, great Hitchcockian noir. Uh, oh, yeah. good. I like that one. Yeah, yeah. I, I like this one. Adam Ratcliffe, mouth's too big. Yeah, very mm. good. Very, very good. good. Again, not a description of the film, more of a quote. <laughs> no, it's also a scene in the film. Yeah. And the one that lives yes. on in uh, the history of Bond, which uh, we'll, we'll come to, I guess, later on. Yeah. Is that all of them, Brendan? They're the highlights. And last one, Kiss My Foot from the Henchman <laughs> Hotline. Very good. Very good. <laughs> um, so what are your two sort of thoughts and feelings about From Russia With Love? Do you remember how you thought about it the first time you saw it? Oh... Oh, well, me and Brendan had a little uh, pre-tete-a-tete uh, around From Russia With Love, and uh, what a breath of fresh air. Absolutely fantastic. All of I, I haven't watched From Russia With Love in a while, and there was a risk in the back of my mind that I was thinking, I'm viewing it with rose-tinted glasses, and when I go back to it, it won't quite be as good as I thought. It really is. It's fantastic. Didn't get bored once, didn't get distracted, just watched the whole thing, absolutely loved it. Like it was a new film, fantastic. It really yeah. does zip by at a great pace, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's it's the one I've watched most since the start of the pandemic. Actually, I think I'm on my fourth watch since since lockdown, the original wow. lockdown, because it's such an easy but intriguing watch, and that it, it just never lets you through. down, does it? No, it never, never lets you down at all. Yeah. Uh, well, it's all it's it's just great story, yeah. right? There's no it, it, the action sequences and stuff are fine; they're good but they're not over the top. They're not there to be big action sequences. It's just, it's all, they've, they've clearly spent more time on the story than anything else. And that's what you need. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it helps that it's the best Fleming book as well. Um, I think, yes. I think the only, my only criticism I would say is that the final scene after the train, train scene, that's sort of the climax of the, of the film. And then after that, it does feel a little bit tacked on, but without that, we wouldn't have the final Rosa Klebb scene. So um Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a minor quibble, I think. So shall we kick things off then? Let's do it. Okay, so the plot of From Russia With Love, which is actually, sometimes we do these plots when we're doing the specials and they're quite hard to kind of go through and explain and pull through all the plot points. But From Russia With Love... As I said, it's a breath of fresh air. It's very simple. The, the, the whole concept is just a really nice, clear storyline. Um, so basically, Spectre, uh, at the start of the film, is, you see Spectre training these new agents in their sort of base of operations. And this is the first time we see Red Grant. And the whole basis is that 
they want somebody to go and kill James Bond because of Dr. No, basically. Um, he's an enemy of Spectre. They just want to get him. That's it. That's that's what they want. They're not really... There's not some weird, grandiose plan. They just want to get Bond. And um, it, the, the, how they do this is um, there's the scene in uh, Venice with the chess grandmaster, Kronstein, who is a Spectre agent, and they bring him into the Spectre office and say, right, we've got a job for you. You've got to get Bond. So he sets up this plan, which is basically to lure Bond to come and pick up this sort of MacGuffin, which is the Lecter cryptography device that the Soviets have. And in order to do that, they use a combination of Kleb as the sort of organizer who's who's managing Red Grant, who's the assassin that they've trained, and Tatiana Romanova, who's sort of the basically bait for Bond to to, to drive him towards the um to drive him towards the lector. M and Bond and everyone know it's a trap, but they want one of these lectors, so they've got to do anything they can to get it. And so Bond says, right, I'm going to go. I'm going to go and get this lector. And they head over to Istanbul, where the bulk of the film takes place. Um, when they go over there, Bond meets up with uh, Karen Bay, who's the liaison, the MI6 uh, sort of head of the branch in Istanbul. Uh, and from that point... It's a little bit muddy. It's there's a lot about the espionage between the Russians and the and MI6 and uh, Istanbul locations and spying on each other. There's a lot of sort of them spying on us or spying on them. But basically, it's all just to to sort of pull together this fact that it's all just to get this lector. And then the whole time, Spectre know what's knows what's happening. Red Grant's watching them. And um, it's all to try and pull Bond into this meeting where they can just kill him, basically. There's a bit in a gypsy settlement, which is sort of friends of Karen Bay. And when they go there, there's a big fight and Red Grant's there and they sort of get out of it. I can't really remember what the point in the um, the, the Russian bit, in the gypsy bit is. Do you remember that? They're visiting. They he's basically just friends with Karim Bay. Yeah, he's just hanging he? out. And, uh, they go. They it's just go to Karim. I was Karim trying to work out this gypsy camp. Yeah, I was trying to work out what they were doing, but they are. They, I think they are just visiting, aren't they? Just something to do. Yeah, because when um, he first meets yeah. him, he says, "Oh, just just hang around here for a few days and go back." That's that's all they're yeah. doing. Yeah, there's a lot of that in this film. But anyway, then it's um, after that scene. Um, there's a little bit of getting into the Russian consulate in uh, Istanbul. Uh, Bond gets the lector and they escape. So him, to, uh, Romanova, and, well, it's just them to escape with Karen Bay onto the Orient Express. And Red Grant gets on the, the, the train as well. There's a plan for Karen Bay where they're actually going to get dropped off at a certain point so they can escape on the train. But that doesn't happen. Red Grant kills the guy that Karen Bay is meant to meet, also kills Karen Bay. And then Red Grant uh, pretends to be this character called Nash, uh, who he killed. He's an agent for MI6, I believe. And yeah, uh, there's a big fight on the train. He drugs Tatiana Ranova. Um, Red Grant tries to kill Bond. Bond eventually kills Red Grant. And then, uh, oh, there's a bit as well as well where um, Grant tries to blackmail Bond using the sex tape that they made earlier on with Romanova, which might crop up later. So yeah, so eventually that all happens and they get away and uh, they get to a, a hotel in Venice the film is bookended by Venice scenes starting at the end uh, where Kleb tries to kill both of them. But Tatiana Romanova kills Kleb. And that's it. They're kissing on a Venice boat at the end and he throws a sex tape in the canal. That's the plot of From Russia of Love. Very well, nicely done. Very nicely done. 
1963, which is when the film was released, Dr. No had obviously been a success for Eon and for United Artists. Um, Eon had quickly moved on to make Call Me Buona with Bob Hope. So we talked about that film when we did Cubby Broccoli. So if you want any more information on that, go back to that episode. But um, yeah, the film uh, from Russia with Love also features a reference to Call Me Buona in the poster that the, uh, the person escapes through later in the film. But uh, yeah, so Doctor No had been a hit while they were making Call, Call Me Buona. A second film was greenlit by United Artists and a second James Bond film. And this was before the film had even opened in the US. It had been such a big hit in UK and Europe that they were confident to move ahead with another film. With Thunderball still tied up with the Kevin McClory situation, Sound the Klaxon, they decided to move forward with From Russia With Love. Cubby Broccoli, the producer, he considered it one of Ian Fleming's best stories, as do a lot of people. He said it was a tough, straightforward spy adventure and the public was familiar with the title. It's actually, it's a bit smaller scale than Doctor No, so it is an interesting choice that they went that way uh, in the next film. Um, and the public being familiar with the title is probably a reference to, to, to Jack Kennedy's endorsement of it, which again we talked about in uh, the Ian Fleming episode. So a couple of things to note, they dropped the comma from the title for the film, From Russia With Love. Um, so the comma is gone. The publicist who worked for Eon, Jerry Giroux, said everything after Dr. No became bigger and better and Sean became bigger and better with it. And Peter Hunt, the editor, said we were also much more respected by the studio then. They no longer thought of us doing a crappy little picture. Suddenly we were the big boys. And that is reflected when in the budget, which we will talk about in a second. But one of the most important decisions they made with From Russia With Love is that they took the politics out of the story. So originally in the book, Smirsh is acting on behalf of Russia, but in the film, uh, it becomes the third party uh, spectre. So it's no longer Russians versus England, Britain. It's spectre, a third party playing Russia against uh, England. So it kind of took it, made it, made it a bit more family friendly, uh, let's say. But yeah, the studio was happy with it, um, with Dr. No, so they give him a bigger budget. Yeah, because the United Artists are so eager on the back of that and they, they wanted to just crack on and, and immediately get into the next one. So they gave them a budget of $2 million and that's double what they had for Dr. No. And also backed by the fact that JFK, like we said, had to put it in his 10 favourite books of all time. That led to Broccoli and Saltzman choosing this and happy to just throw throw that that money at it, and that's about eighteen million dollars in this in today's money, and so this budget increase obviously means the star could be paid more. Yeah. So Connery on Doctor No, Connery uh, receives sixteen thousand dollars, and now after the various negotiations and the extra money that they've been given by the studio, um, Connery reportedly got fifty. For a £54,000 salary as well as a bonus of £100,000. So a little little bit of a jump from uh, Dr. No. Um, I couldn't find a lot about any sort of negotiations that went on. I had a look at um, Cubby's autobiography. He does talk a bit about in it, in it that, um, as we all know, Connery was a difficult man when it came to money. So there's a lot of sort of negotiating around this and, and, and later films. I did find out something quite interesting, which I'm not sure is actually accurate because it seems like um it's there's a lot of discussion on what was actually happening with it but there's some more recent articles around connery with there was a lawsuit that he had with um i think it was uh united artists around certain royalties he was meant to get from earlier films 
So there was there was some there's some something around uh, an additional part of the contract that he would get he would receive a bit of money off the backer from Russia with Love, but I couldn't really find out the details of that. So yeah, so yeah, made a bit more money on this one, but obviously nowhere near as much as he'd make in some of the future ones. So for from Russia with Love uh, and and who they were going to get to direct it, they basically just went back to the person that directed the previous one. They had a good relationship with Terence Young, who had done Doctor No, and many other pictures for Cubby Broccoli in the past, um, and basically just got him straight to work on from Russia with Love. Talking about the film later on, uh, after he'd made it, Terence Young said this was, in my feelings, the best of the Bond pictures. Not because I directed it, although I think it's well directed, but because it was the best subject for a Bond film. It had a couple of exotic locales. It had the ingredients of the book itself. I think it's the most readable of the books and it's certainly the most agreeable Bond picture to sit through and watch. It also had two or three terribly good supporting roles, which sort of chimes with what we were saying earlier about it being a very rewatchable film. Yeah, you can't can't really argue with that. Um, in terms of the script, um, so like you said earlier about they wanted to take away the political overtones that, that were present in the book and... So Cubby said, we decided to steer 007 and the script clear of politics. Bond would have no identifiable political affiliation. None of the protagonists would be the stereotyped Iron Curtain or inscrutable Oriental villain. It was old fashioned and would induce pointless controversy. So good to have somebody like that, you know, at the helm. who's got the foresight to see that you could kind of future proof within reason these films. And so Len Dayton was was brought on um, to write the script and he met with Fleming and he also met with uh, Harry Saltzman. Uh, He met with Saltzman at the the week Dr. No opened in October 1962. He met at Pinewood. So very much had that view of moving forward with with him writing the script. They went on a recce to Istanbul. Harry Saltzman, Sid Kane, Terence Young. And then Dayton, and he said, there were only four of us on the recce and Harry's conversations with the art director gave me the impression they were starting from scratch. So did the sessions I had with Harry every day over breakfast at the hotel. So at this point, he was was like a new thriller uh, writer and he he sort of writing in the the mould of Ian Fleming, but he'd written The Ipcris File, which was the anti-Bond, basically. That's what he was going for. And unfortunately, this didn't work out in terms of writing this because he he was replaced and they weren't making any progress with the the actual script. So then they brought in Joanna Harwood, who we talked about from the Doctor No episode, and Richard Maybaum again, who both worked on Doctor No. And Maybaum thought it was actually the the best of the Ian Fleming books. He said, I think we crystallised the kind of thing that the Bond movies should be. That film was the one in which we set the style. In fact, I wrote the script in just six weeks. It still remains my favourite. So there's a lot of people who have made this film that are championing this film as being their favourite or one of the best. That's always a good sign. And so Joanna Harwood, she was credited for the adaptation and these were for her suggestions that remained in the script, which carried over from Maybaum's script. But Maybaum felt that these uh, this well, this credit was actually unfair. He said, I was a little put out that she was given an adaptation credit because I don't think she deserved it. 
but there are always politics in these things. Uh, she's actually stated in an interview that she used to, because she, she used to work with Harry Saltzman, he wanted her to work on this. Harry said I should rewrite From Russia With Love with Terence Young. I thought this is going to be agony. We had one afternoon together where I watched Terence Young running his pencil through, rewriting the scenes and saying, there, that's much better, isn't it? I had to bite my tongue because I was thinking, it's not much better. And he's not going to listen if I tell him. So I went off, found Harry Saltzman and said I'm leaving. So unfortunately, she also left as well, uh, but retained that credit because her agent fought for it. As they were, as the filming was progressing, Maybaum was still making rewrites. The Red Grant was added to the Istanbul scenes just before they actually started shooting in Turkey, uh, where Grant kills the the guy where he saves Bond's life in the temple. And then there's also further uncredited rewrites, courtesy of uh, Berkeley Mather, who I think we've talked about as well, haven't we? We covered him at some we point. Have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, like you said, there's there was a lot of work on this, a lot of people working on it as well, but it it seemed to have gone through vigorous rights. And then the crew on the film, aside from the ones you've mentioned, uh, main ones that uh, are on this one, of course, John Barry, Ted Moore, director of photography on the film. There is Peter Hunt, who was the editor on it, and then Sid Kane's also associated with it, but he's uh, he, he's uh, an uncredited um, art director on the film. Not going to talk, go, go to too much detail with those because we're going to talk about all those in other episodes. Yeah, returning cast, we've got um, Connery, obviously, back as Bond, as discussed. Bernard Lee came back as M. Uh, Lois Maxwell as Moneypenny. And the very first Bond girl to make a second appearance, which was uh, Eunice Gason as Sylvia Trench. So um, the, this is quite a well-known story, but uh, Te- if Terence Young had had his way and had, and had directed the first six Bond films as, as had been originally planned, uh, he wanted to bring Sylvia Trench into every of those Bond films, early Bond films. So the, the gag was going to be that Bond was with Sylvia Trench at the start of each film and then he would get called away from a mission and have to leave Sylvia Trench behind. Um, that only happened in the first two films. So, uh, But yeah, she's the first Bond girl to make a return. Gason has talked about it many times in the past. Sadly, she, she died a couple of years ago, but um, she was had been offered the role of Moneypenny, but took the role of Sylvia Trench instead. She said, I went to New York to audition for The Sound of Music in the West End and I got it. So I had to turn down Moneypenny. So they wrote Sylvia Trench and the gag was that Bond would always be called away just as they were getting down to it. And in the sixth one, Sean and I would really get together. Of course, they didn't stay for six films, and that was the end of Trench. So, uh, yeah, because obviously in the third film we had Guy Hamilton came in and replacing Terence Young. Um, but yeah, I mean that's the, that's the that's the returning cast. But uh, obviously, From Russia with Love marks the entry of a huge part of the James Bond story. Brendan, fill us Absolutely. in. Absolutely. So, Peter Burton, who had played Major Boothroyd in Doctor No, was unable to come back, uh, and so the part actually went to an actor called Desmond Llewellyn. And in in terms of the credits, he's credited just as Boothroyd um, and not referred to the name as we all know him moving forward as Q. But M does does introduce him as being from Q branch. That's as close as we get to him being referred to as Q. So Desmond Llewellyn himself recalls how actually got the part and how he um, what he had to do to sort of play it. He said, I did have a very good part in a film called They Were Not Divided. I played a Welsh tank driver, 
and it was thanks to that part I was put up for the second Bond film from Russia With Love. Luckily for me, the chap who played Boothroyd in Doctor No was unavailable. Terence Young had written and directed They Were Not Divided. I got the part. Actually, he wanted me to play the character as a Welshman, but I refused. I had quite a battle with him. I said, you mean you want me to play it? I've got a nice suitcase and a knife that pops out the air. Luckily, I'm... Glad you got that one. <laughs> Luckily, I managed to persuade him against it. Very nice. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I wonder if the character of Q had have lasted that long, if he had have played it with that sort of accent. It would have been interesting. In terms of his pay, he got paid £30 for one day's work. Don't know how much Very that nice. is worth now, but yeah, only one day's work and the start of an, start of an incredible journey in the Bond franchise. Mm. Or is it 17 films he appeared mm. in? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. What, what a legend. Yeah. So then we've got the Bond girls, which we've kind of talked of about already in a few cases. Uh, of course, Dan- Daniela Bianchi is uh, Tatiana R- Romanova, who I think is fantastic in this. She's... I. When I look back at the older Bond films, I I always seem to assume that the the Bond uh, female characters are going to be a little bit two dimensional, which they are in a lot of cases. Not not in this one. I think she's a very rounded, really interesting character that's that's just does a great job in it. But way be it before a time, I think I think they lost that a bit over the well some of the films following up and on a Magic Secret Service. Obviously, he's got a very good female lead but this is uh, yeah she's just fantastic and she holds it together right until the end she doesn't get stupid or just pathetic so yeah she's really good um then of course we've got Eunice Grace uh, Gayson who you've spoken about already Martin Bezik who we have talked about at length in an earlier episode who plays Zora who is the one of the um gypsy fighting women and then there's the other uh, Elisa Gur is uh, plays Vida, who's the other woman that's that's in the fight in that scene, uh, and also there's uh, Naja Regine, who is the uh, Karen Bay's mistress, who I think is has a really good role in this. She doesn't do a great deal, but she's um, she's quite funny in that role. Karen, she's, she's really quite works well quite, with Karen. quite irritating when she's uh, calling for him when she's on the bed. He's just not having any. No, he's, he's not busy. He's, he's reading working, a book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think that she's a she's a good character in that. But uh, yeah, that's the um, Bond Bond women. A bit of a sort of understated list of Bond women, I think. But I think that's a testament to the film mm. that it's not about that. It's yeah. it's, it's it'd be stupid. If yeah, you well, yeah. I mean, they find the, the 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 Bond girl formula really comes with Goldfinger, doesn't mm. it? With the uh, the sort of what you expect. So the first two are a little bit different. What I love about Tatiana is that she's her motives. Are they're shifting all the time? You don't know whether she's loyal to to Smirch, mm. whether she's loyal to Bond, uh, and I find that really interesting. I think that's probably yeah. why she's got she's a lot such of a depth, w- hasn't she? Which you couldn't yeah. have. I mean, if you had a, uh, I don't know what um, uh, Tiffany Case, just wouldn't work with her. Like, no. don't care. Would you? You wouldn't care if she had shifting loyalties and things like that. What, what's but no? What's great is it's all the way till the end. Even that Cleb scene. Yeah. Yes, Cleb scene. You're not sure when she yes. leaves the room. You're like. Hang on, whose side is she going to be on? And then she comes and she's aiming the gun, moving it across, and you're still not sure. It's yeah, it's it's great. Yeah. It's indicative of that sort of 1960s espionage, Cold War type stuff, where that was it was all about allegiances and who was whose side were people on, which they kind of forgot about later on when they you know they became less important. But yeah, she's she's very good in that.
Right, The Villains. Now, this is a great film for villains, I think. Uh, obviously, the one we've talked about already is Robert Shaw as Red Grant. Robert Shaw is probably one of my favourite actors of all time, and he's absolutely fantastic in this. He's the first in a long line of blonde Bond henchmen, you know, that he really set the bar high for that. Um, he's a sort of stone-cold serial-killing psychopath in the book. That's kind of not really covered too much in the film, but Robert Shaw does bring a real amount of menace to um, the role. So Robert Shaw and Sean Connery actually knew each other um, and they were sort of contemporaries of each other. Shaw was known at the time more as a playwright who had recently moved into acting, but Connery and Shaw basically mixed in the same circles. And actually Robert Shaw had been considered to play Bond himself at, at one point. They actually shared an agent, Robert Hatt- Richard Hatton, and they had a bit of a, a friendly rivalry. Obviously, they would later appear together again in 1976's Robin and Marion as Robin and the Sheriff of Nottingham, which you both know I'm a big fan of. So to prepare to play Grant, uh, Robert Shaw hit the gym. Uh, he spent two hours a day in the gym working out with Turkish wrestlers. And he was actually four inches shorter than Sean Connery. So in scenes that they shared together, he stood on a small box which I thought was quite funny. That always confuses me. Whenever I watch it, I always think, he's not that tall, surely. But yeah. there we go, he isn't. But we'll cover Red Grant a little bit more when we get to the letter G. Um, Rosa Klebb, uh, she was played by Lottie Lenya. And um, I didn't know this. Um, it's probably well known, but not to me. But she was known as a singer at the time. And she'd actually hmm. just been nominated for an Academy Award when Harry Saltzman decided to cast her as Rosa Klebb, which is quite interesting because it's one of those sort of left field casting choices that works really well. She uh, was known as a, she, she had fled Europe in the 1930s because she was Jewish, had, like I said, appeared in the 1961 film, The Roman Spring of Mrs. Stone, which had uh, earned her a, a nomination uh, for Best Supporting Actress. So talking about getting the call, uh, Lottie Lenya said, I was working at the Royal Court playing in Brecht on Brecht when the call came. Miss Lenya, we have a part for you. And the producer, Ian Salt, Mr. Saltzman, said it's an Ian Fleming story. And I said, I'm very sorry about my ignorance, but I don't know who Ian Fleming is. So he sent over a book and she read it. Um, and she was surprised by the description of Rosa Klebb, which said she was 240 pounds and that her bosom was down to her knee. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and you've seen Lottie Lenya. She's tiny. She's a very s- small lady. But, you know, they thought she was perfect for it. So she, she was cast um, and Daniela Bianchi said that Lottie was a very small, very sweet woman and her role of a tough villain was just totally different from what she was. Elsewhere, we've also got Walter Gotel as Morzini. Now, obviously, we know Gotel probably better as General Gogol, who appeared in six of the James Bond films in the 70s and 80s. Um, and he came to the film because he'd worked with Cubby on the Red Beret in 1953. Then we've got Vladek Shabel as Kronstein, who you mentioned the chess genius, and he had also worked with Harry previously on a film called Canal. And when Vladek Shabel was offered the film, he turned it down. He said, I read it and I hated it. He said he basically thought it was a bit silly and beneath him. So he told his agent, um, who said he was silly for turning it down and that people would be, you know, falling over themselves to be in a James Bond film. But he, he insisted, and actually later on, it was Sean Connery who called him to take the part, and he called him a complete idiot. And Sean and Diane Salento were quite... Insi- they'd basically recommended him for the film. And so, um, yeah, they, they, they convinced him to join the film. And there's a funny story about Harry rewriting uh, Vladek's uh, dialogue on the set. And he stood up to Harry um, and walked off the step. And he apparently, according to Terence Young, was one of the only people to ever stand up to Harry. 
Um, and after that, Harry stayed well away uh, from the set. So mm. uh, I thought it was quite an interesting story. Yeah. Um, but they worked again with uh, Harry. He worked again with Harry on The Billion Dollar Brain with Michael Caine later on. Finally, we've got Anthony Dawson as Blofeld. I won't go over this because we've done Blofeld at length on the B, letter B. Um, so go back and look at that. Obviously, the genius of Blofeld in this film is that you don't really see him and you just see the cat, um, which uh, obviously set the template for Blofeld uh, there on in, basically. So that's it. So who, who else have we got as the allies of Bond? Well, well, before you go into that, I just wanted to say that for almost you have loved, the villains are some of the best rounded villains in any Bond film, like every one of them has a really important part to play in not just the story, but, you know, like Blofeld's menacing, you know, he's he's meant to be scary. That's You see that in like Kleb, she's terrified mm. of him, but she's terrifying as well. So that's, it's such a clever way to use villains, which you don't really see in a lot of, normally the henchmen, just henchmen, they don't care. Oddjob's never scared of Goldfinger or anything like that. It's just done so well in this that everyone is, is layers of fear amongst all of the, the henchmen and baddies because of this one at the top. And they lose that massively in the later Blofeld films because he's not scary anymore. Nobody is, seems to be scared of him. That's that's my... that's uh, Yeah, I think they're fantastic baddies in there from Richard Love. Yeah, especially when you compare them, like I said, the, the other blonde Bond henchmen, you know, like Peter Franks, Eric Kriegler, Necros, Stamper, all those sorts of people. Yeah, They are just a blonde person mm, with yeah. muscles, right? Yeah. Whereas Red Grant is genuinely terrifying. Mm, I guess it's yeah. the way that he infiltrates Bond's story yeah. uh, and I, stalks him and what have you. Yeah. yeah. Well, I suppose Red Grant's good because you look at like Rosa Klebb, she's terrified of Blofeld. Grant isn't. He just doesn't care. He's not bothered about anyone else. He's not cared about... He's not scared of Rosa Klebb either. He's just got a job to do. It's, they're all just so rounded and they're, they're very clear characters. Um, just works fantastically. Definitely. So in terms of Ally, we have covered him. He's had his own section earlier. Kerim Bay, if you go back to the, the, uh, the B episode, he is the main ally and he got the part because Cubby had remembered one of the biggest stars in Mexico. So flew out to California and just offered him the part and that's, that's how he got it. But again, I think he's an excellent ally. I think he's probably one of my favourite in, in, in all the films. Their relationship is excellent. Yeah, he sets the template, doesn't he, of that sort of father figure to Bond, someone that mixes in the same circle, has yeah. a bit of menace, but also a bit of um, uh, cheeky uh, spark to them, yeah. like we later get with Draco, for example, and um, what's his name, Columbo, all those sorts of people. They all owe a debt to Pedro Armendariz mm. um, as Karen Bay, for sure. Okay, so on to production. And as always, Pinewood played a big part in this film. The filming began in uh, Pinewood on April 1st in 1963. A number of scenes were filmed at Pinewood. The MI6 office in London uh, with a lot of the earlier scenes, but also it crops up later as well where they're listening in on uh, conversations that are being had. Spectre Island, that uh, really nice um, set piece set up. That was at Pinewood, obviously. So that yeah, that whole thing where they train Grant and it it looks enormous. That that Spectre Island, it looks like it's an, like in a massive outdoor set. That's all at Pinewood. The Venice Hotel uh, was at Pinewood. The interior scenes of the Orient Express, as you would imagine, were all at Pinewood as well. And the Gypsy Camp was meant to be filmed at an actual camp in a place called Top Carpi, uh, but that was shot uh, at a replica at Pinewood as well. 
And interestingly, I couldn't work out where this was, but apparently uh, this is just a fact about the Pinewoods, filming at Pinewood. Uh, one of the explosions with uh, in the film got out of control and it burnt Walter Gotel's eyelids. Ooh, I couldn't work out which explosion this was. I was trying to work it out in the film, but um, yeah, interesting little fact there for you. But I think that's everything from Pinewood. Can I tell you a little fun story about Pinewood? Go on. So a few years ago when Rogue One was coming out, they held an event there um, for, oh, I think it was like a razor company, Gillette. They had an event there and they had, um, I was just wandering around the garden at Pinewood. They had a big X-Wing there, a big Lego X-Wing. And I realized this is the garden from, from Russia with Love. So I've been there. Wow. Yeah. Really what were you more excited about? The garden being from, from Russia with Love or the Lego <laughs> X-Wing. It was it was Warwick Davis being there. Come on. I'm not right, going to yeah, lie. Okay, yeah, got you. Got you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, understood. <laughs> so, uh, something else that was filmed at Pinewood was the train fight. And this is something we teased in the earlier in the episode. One critic called the fight between Red Grant and James Bond on the Orient Express the most t- exciting two minutes of cinema imaginable. Um, and when you watch it in isolation... You can you can see that right, and even as part of the film, it, it really builds up to that. Um, it's one of the most iconic Bond fight scenes, and it's renowned for the sort of the brutality of the of the fisticuffs that happens between the two of them. And what's really interesting about it is is, is the way it plays out without any score happening. And, and I'll come to this about how it was structured, but they basically play the sounds of the trains over instead of having a score, which really then ramps up the tension as well. But the choreography for the fight scene was arranged by a guy called Peter Perkins, who had taken over from Bob Simmons as the stunt coordinator. And he worked with Terence Young to work out how the fight would go, because Terence Young had also been a boxer in his younger years. So to shoot the scene, Bob Simmons returned to double for Connery. He'd been off shooting Genghis Khan with John Wayne, I think. And the guy called Jack Cooper came in to double for Robert Shaw. And they rehearsed with Sean and Robert for two days to make sure that their fight scene, you know, the choreography was 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 just right. They were originally going to shoot the scene with just two cameras, uh, two stationary cameras. But when Peter Hunt sort of got wind of what was going on, he suggested that they actually use some handheld cameras as well. So they actually used three cameras in the end. I think a couple of handheld Arriflex cameras, I think. And so they rehearsed them really, really rigorously for the for the fight. And according to Peter Hunt in the DVD extras uh, from Russia With Love, um, there is actually only one shot in the film that is the stuntman doing the fighting. It, apparently, Sean Connery and, and Robert Shaw did the bulk of it, which is really interesting. But it took just three days to shoot. Um, and, and Peter Hunt talks about editing the sequence uh, and He's talking about how he was thinking about it all the time. And you can see that in, in the sequence. It's really, really classily put together. But he would apparently woke up, he would wake up early hours in the morning and whiz down to the editing bay because he'd had an idea at like five o'clock in the morning for something to do. But like I said, it's it's largely music free and it's set to the, the rhythmic uh, like chugging along of the train. And the sound design is done by a guy called Normal Monstall. But when they'd done the scene and put it together, they decided that it needed something a bit more. So they went back to an extra half day of shooting. And some of the stuff that they added in was the bit right at the start of the film where one of them smashed the window. I think, is it with a punch or a kick? I can't remember. And the reason they did that was that it would allow the sounds of the train to come into the carriage. And that's how they really amplified the tension by putting the train noises over the top of it. 
And and what's really interesting, I think, is that it really looks like Bond is taking a beating in this and you worry that he might not actually win. Obviously, he does win in the end, garroting Red Grant with his own wristwatch garrot. Um, but the, at the end of it, Sean Connery as James Bond, he looks disheveled. He, he steps back, he takes a few deep breaths. And it takes a little moment to recover from the fight, which is something you don't see very often in Bond films. And in the end, he then goes forward and steals the money from Red Grant's pockets and delivers his quip. You won't be needing this, old man. And it's just superb. And you can see how often later down the line, directors look back to From Russia With Others, the one they want to imitate. And there's that scene in um, Spectre with Dave Batista, which is sort of reminiscent. Um, and then you've got... Is it Roger Moore and, and um, Jaws mm. in... Um, Spy Love Me. Spy Love Me, yeah, on the train. But nothing quite matches up with this. It's, it's, it's genuinely one of the best, not just Bond fight scenes, but fight scenes in movies ever, I think. Yeah, the other thing I, about that is, in From Rush With Love, the one-liners, there's a reason for them. He's not, they're not there to be funny. They're, like, when he says stuff, like, that's not a funny joke. Mm. It's not a word... Uh, like a, you know, word wordplay it's just a cool thing to say which you probably would say afterwards because he's you know it shows that he's got a little bit of humor about him but that's probably it it got changed over the next few films didn't it but i think there's definitely a lot of nice one-liners in there that are really things that bond would actually say yeah that that scene is you can't take your eyes off of it it's one of those it's one of those films in cinema where it's you have to watch it always every time you see it you have to just keep glued to the screen yeah, well, I like what you, what you were saying earlier before we started this um, about the Natasha case. He's been given something that ev- it, it's like logical that he's been given that because everyone else has been given that thing and he's used it smartly. It's not like a device that can only be used in one scenario. He's very cleverly thought, right, I can use this here, but I've got to play, yeah. play it well. But yeah, it just all ties in very nicely to, to that scene. Very nice. So, as most of the film is set in Istanbul, they went out and shot in Istanbul. So, the locations were the Basilica Cistern, the St. Sophia Mosque, the Serkeci. Is it Serkeci? Train station. Let's go Let's with go that. Let's go with Serkeci, uh, which was also used for Belgrade and Zagreb railway stations. So, 20th of April, 1963, the crew fly out to Istanbul. And according to Cubby, the location was another reason that they chose this novel as a second film. So when filming in the mosque, the site could never be closed because of the way the tourist the tourism worked over there. So always tourists are walking around. The, and Sid Kane says the shooting schedule inside the mosque was sporadic as the Turkish government would only allow us to shoot when it did not interfere with normal tourism activity. So they didn't have a, a a great time, you know, while actually doing the actual shoots because of how people reacted to it. There were thousands and thousands of people gathering because they just weren't used to this sort of thing happening there. At the actual station, Sid Kane says, for three frustrating takes in a row, the train driver managed to miss the mark each time ripping out the cables to the generators and plunging the station into darkness. Finally, on the fourth take, the scene was completed. So yeah, the there's a, actually a newspaper report st- stating how how many people were sort of gathering around and swarming around. So at the the railway station, 
they were trying to get a scene done with Sean Connery running into the main entrance. And there was a massive crowd and they're all just really fixated on the camera rather than actual, rather than Sean Connery himself because they just, just weren't used to it. And so Terence Young had to be shrewd about this and, and distract the crowd so they could get this shot. So he sent one of the stuntmen to hang from a third floor balcony screaming for help. And <laughs> this meant that the crowd, their attention was diverted, but it also got the attention of a a fire engine to arrive. So you had a fire engine, sirens screaming, the police were involved, and so the firefighters, they, they rescued the man from the balcony. And this is what the crowd were interested in, this non-thing that was sort of happening. Um, so he went off with his crew, got the the, the scene shot and done. Um, so incredible bit of... Uh, Sounds extreme. I mean, it's, yeah, it's extreme, but it just got, do it at Pinewood. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, do it on a soundstage. So the underground chamber, the flooded underground chamber, where they, um, where Bond and Karen Bay, they go on that the the boat, and um, that's that's actually that's real with the periscope that exists, um, and it's been restored, and it's a museum. You can go there uh, and visit that. Also, Ian Fleming visited the set. So we talked about the Doctor No episode. You know, it was only down the road from where he lived, so that was very convenient. But he also visited while they were shooting in Turkey. And producer Stanley Sopel said he was terribly interested. It wasn't publicity. He just wanted to see what the hell we were up to. He stayed about a week, enjoyed himself, said, carry on, fellows, and away he went. And uh, this is where Cubby got quite close to him. And he said, I got to know him better when we were doing From Russia With Love. We went down to Turkey on the same plane. He loved to order food. And later, when my wife Dana, Dana came down, he took us out to dinner several places. In one case, he was rather annoyed because one of our people insisted on ordering food. He wanted to do the ordering. He didn't want somebody going into a Turkish restaurant ordering en masse. So he sulked a bit. When we got there and he found out it was all preordained. When they asked what he wanted, he said, well, I'll have a Spanish omelette. In Turkey. <laughs> That was his way of getting back and saying that he didn't approve of the dishes that were ordered. So Diane Cilento also went with Connery to Turkey, Ian Fleming and uh, Pedro Amendares all seemed to strike up quite a nice little friendship while they're out there. Specifically Fleming and Amendares, they got quite close, which I think we'll cover in a bit. Uh, another scene that's in the film, which is a really nice scene, is the um, the boat chase sequence with Tatiana and Bond uh, being chased by what's his name in this? It's not Golgol. Morzani. That's it. Yeah, it's so Spectre Number Five or whatever it is. There we go. So um, that that sequence was originally meant to um, be filmed off the coast of Turkey uh, in a village called Pendik uh, near the Greek border, but. Um, a number of delays meant that it wasn't actually filmed there. It was um, the shoot was abandoned, and they actually had to move it to Crinan uh, and Loch Gilpied. I don't know how to pronounce Scottish names. I may have got those wrong. Uh, on the west coast of Scotland, uh, quite near Glasgow. But interestingly, around that time, um, as part of this deal, and I think you might mention this a bit in a bit, Butler, um, that British filming. Uh, if you're making a film in Britain, you had to film a certain amount for it to be qualified as being a British film. And that was at least 70% of the film 
had to be in Great Britain or, or the Commonwealth at that time. So seems logical that if they abandoned a uh, shoot abroad, they would just come back over here and to just have to do it within um, the, the borders. But yeah, so that was all done uh, up in Scotland. Yeah, talking about tax breaks, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, we've not we've not talked about them yet, so I want to just slip them in. <laughs> so, of tragedy then struck uh, the from Russia with love set, and we covered this in B for Karen Bay, one in one of our first ever episodes. So it's worth revisiting. But um, as you said, Ian Fleming and Armendariz, Pedro Armendariz, had become quite friendly in uh, Turkey in Istanbul, and one of the things that they talked about a lot was Ernest Hemingway because Ernest. Armin Dares had been friends with Ernest Hemingway and Hemingway, of course, had killed himself after suffering from ill health. And this was something that Fleming and, and Pedro talked about uh, while they were there. And Fleming had asked Pedro why Hemingway had killed himself. And Pedro had said, it's the only thing a man has left to do in that condition. So sadly, Armin Dares had been diagnosed with terminal cancer. And so what they did is after he joined the film is that and found this out, they moved all of his scenes to the start of the shoot and um, uh, and got everything out of the way. And so so that Pedro could return home to America, be with his family, blah, blah, blah. So he, he left the shoot in June 1963. Um, and uh, Terence Young threw a going away party for him at his, at his London home. And Ian Fleming actually also came to that party as well. Um, but at the time, Fleming was also ill as well. So, yeah, after that, he returned to America and he was in the, um, the Cedars of Lebanon Hospital, which is now the Cedars Sinai Hospital in L.A., he had arranged to have lunch with his wife and agent and had sent them ahead to go to lunch. And actually, he pulled a gun from under his pillow that he'd smuggled in and killed himself. No one ever found out how he'd smuggled the gun in. But yeah, that was it. Basically, Armendariz um, killed himself, possibly inspired by Hemingway due to the pain of his, his illness, which is just an absolute tragedy because he's fantastic in this film and by all accounts, a great actor. Terence Young then stepped in and doubled for Armendariz uh, in the rest of the film. And what they did is then they would just use the back of, pe- uh, of, of the character to shoot against. Uh, but yeah, a real, real tragedy. And apparently there's a, there's a deleted scene with him, which is really terrific. And uh, Terence Young kicks himself that he can't use it. But it, it, it was filmed and it was sort of it meant it was out of sequence because the other guy in the scene was the agent that gets killed in the uh, cathedral. Um, so they couldn't use it. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's that. That's Armendariz sadly dying and it really like put a, a real sad tone over the the rest of the shoot um so the scene where you've got lo- all those rats coming through the the cisterns that was could not be filmed in istanbul and it also couldn't be filmed in the uk due to health and safety restrictions but they did try they got some they got tame rats and they painted them with cocoa to make them look like brown rats. Amazing. What, what what problem do you think they encountered there? What possible problem would you have if you cover if you cover rats in chocolate? What are they going to do? Eat each other. Well, they ate the chocolate. Thankfully, not each other. I mean, end, end up with just one rat. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, because they got the lights on them, the chocolate started melting, and they were just licking the chocolate off of each other. Um, so that didn't work. So not not as menacing a scene. No. Is it? <laughs> so Sid Kane went to Madrid and the animal laws are a little bit more relaxed. And so they 
got hundreds of rats into this uh, set that was built in a warehouse in Madrid. And the crew were behind in a glass sort of glass wall cage thing. And then they they got the shot. However, the rats just overran the place and were everywhere. And Sid Kane says, Cubby Broccoli was a man of some considerable girth, but he moved like an Olympic runner to outrace me to a stepladder. <laughs> so not a fan of rats, clearly, Cubby. Who is? <laughs> not Sean Connery in Last Crusade. I was going to say it's reminiscent of that, isn't it? Yeah. Um, well, it's always one of three things, isn't it, that people are scared of. So in the, the film is bookended by two scenes in Venice, which is a nice little neat way of doing things. You've got a few shots at the start before they go into the uh, chess championship. And then at the end, of course, you have Tatiana and Bond on a gondola floating through the river. So they, um, Connery was never in Venice. That was all second unit stuff, um, which was shot near the Bridge of Sighs in um, Venice, which is the, the big bridge that looks very nice. So yeah, the so they're, they're all just second unit shots. Um, and the actual scenes that you can see with Tatiana and Bond at the end is done with uh, rear projection. Nice little scenes though. The, the only um, other Venice scene I can remember is Roger Moore in a gondola and it's not quite as good. What about Casino Royale? And Casino Royale, and yeah. Casino Royale, yeah. Do, do they go on? Oh yeah, of course, yeah. There's quite a lot of scenes in there. He's not a gondola though, is he? <laughs> what? Best James <laughs> Bond gondola scene. Go. Moonraker. <laughs> yeah, easily, easily. It's got pigeon in, hasn't yeah. it? Does double take. <laughs> yeah. They missed that in uh, From Russia With Love. Anyway, that's 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 Venice. Uh, so, yeah, as you mentioned, they had to cr- complete the shoot in Scotland after they weren't able to shoot the boat chase in Greece. And so they filmed it in Creenan on the west coast of Scotland. Uh, interestingly, though, when while they were scouting there, Terence Young and the assistant art director, Michael White, they actually had a helicopter crash. When a, a crosswind, they took off in, a helip- in the helicopter and a crosswind tipped them out into the water. Uh, Young had to broke the can- break the canopy and swim clear of the helicopter. He actually cut his hand in process. And he returned to direct the rest of the film with his arm in a sling. Mm. But that basically wrapped up production uh, on the film in Scotland. And then we can move into post-production. So uh, the the titles where we have Morris Binder not returning. We we did cover this in uh, the B episode. Morris Binder not returning because he had a dispute with Harry Saltzman. And this is where they they get in graphic, uh, advertising graphic designer Robert Brownjohn, which I think might have been in the same episode or maybe one after. Um, we did another episode on Brownjohn. Right, okay, yeah. So that we've also covered Brownjohn as well. But Trevor Bond said, Brownjohn, a graphic designer, had never made a film in his life. So they said, you'd better have Trevor Bond to help you out because he'd done the first one. And so the idea, the initial idea... Trevor Bond says was to create a the sequence around chess pieces, which was inspired by the opening scene, but that that didn't didn't happen because he went for the titles being projected over the curves of a belly dancer, um, and this was a new a new technique, and this was inspired by two things. Robert Brownjohn, uh, his his wife was leaving a screening early, and the film was projected on her while she was leaving, and it gave him an idea. And also the work of artist Laszlo Maholi Nagy, 
who was creating art with light on clouds. Um, so a bit of a development on, on those two two things. And when he was pitching this idea, he just lifted up his shirt and shot a beam of light at himself and said, it'll be like this, except we'll use a pretty girl. And that was how he pitched that. And three three different girls were used for the sequence, including Nadja Regin, who played Karen, Karen's uh, girlfriend in that scene at the near the beginning of the film. Well, the song for From Russia With Love is, it was composed by Lionel Bart, uh, who was famous for composing uh, the Oliver um, musical music. Um, and it was sung by Matt Ronroe. Matt Ronroe is a bit of a funny one because he's a little bit of a old school singer. We, it, it, his fame never really made it through into like the modern day, like most other Bond singers have done, especially from uh, from around that era. So um, he he was brought in to do the title music. But interestingly, the music that plays over the title sequence is only an instrumental version of it, which is a rare occurrence in a Bond film. And it then uh, sort of segues into the James Bond theme from the instrumental. So you don't actually hear Matt Monroe's uh, From Rush With Love song playing at the start of the film. You do hear it, however, playing on the radio when he's with uh, where um, Sylvia Trench, I believe. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's right, isn't it? On um, the boat. Yeah, which is another interesting, uh, it, it's it's somewhat strange thing to sort of expect from an old film. It seems sort of meta for that for that era um, when it's not been played in the first scene as well. The film, uh, the song is actually played in the uh, end sequence as well uh, for the film. So yeah, didn't go into too much depth about that. We'll probably do one on Matt Monroe when it comes up to M, but uh, yeah, that's the, the theme song. Yeah, interesting that they didn't get John Barry to uh, compose it, considering that he had been brought in to work on the music for the film. But um, mm. yeah, so J- John Barry obviously began his illustrious relationship with James Bond uh, when he fi- basically came to fix the music on Monty Norman's music on Doctor No and famously redid the title song to give us the James Bond theme that we know and love today, written by Monty Norman, arranged by John Barry. So... Uh, after working on Doctor No, he had been promised the chance if they got to do sequels to do the music for the sequels. So he was brought back for From Russia with Love, and working on the film, uh, one of the one of the things that he really wanted to do was to write a song that would challenge Monty Norman's James Bond theme, um, because he knew that every time they used the James Bond theme, the classic that Monty Norman would get the credit and the royalties. So what John Barry did is he wrote the 007 theme, which is the one that plays over the gypsy fight and is probably one of my, it's probably my favourite piece of James Bond music, full stop. Um, You both know which one I mean? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, big time. Yeah. Uh, I won't sing it for you, but yeah. I'm (laughs) But um, yeah, he did actually produce the song that was written by Lionel Bart and sung by Matt Monroe for the film. And so obviously added his touch to that as well. Uh, and he did travel to Istanbul with the crew to get inspiration for the music as Monty Norman had done for Dr. No. But he said that, that it wasn't really much use to him. He said, it was like no place I'd ever been in my life. The trip was supposedly to seep up the music. So Noel Rogers and I used to go around to these nightclubs and listen to all this stuff. We had the strangest week and really came away with nothing except a lot of ridiculous stories. We went back, talked to Lionel, and then he wrote From Russia With Love. 
So yeah, John Barry at the start of his illustrious uh, relationship with Bond, but some amazing pieces of John Barry music mm-hmm. in this film, the 007 theme, the Lecter music, just, it really is stunning and just a real great taste of what was to become uh, with, with Barry and the, and the Bond music. Yeah, I, I love listening to this soundtrack. I just think it's, it's, it's got some really, really great tracks about. The one thing that stands out in the actual film is the overuse of the theme when he's in the hotel room checking for bugs. I don't think that's overuse. <laughs> you like that. That's Absolutely with necessary. That. <laughs> so the posters. So I think this is one of the one of the posters where I could I could say draw the poster and you could probably get it pretty close. This is this is very iconic poster, this one. It's it's using the minimalist style of Doctor No, it carries that through. It's got the tagline, James Bond is back. So it's you know, it's simple. Uh, it's got the two bullets next to the 007 logo. Remember the Joseph Karoff, which we spoke about, added the extra bullet to signify it's the second film. And uh, so it was designed by um, Eddie Paul and it was painted by Renato Frattini. And yeah, a absolutely fantastic poster. But again, like we say, the hand-drawn ones, excellent. Yeah, th- there's absolutely loads of really great posters for... Um from Russia with love lots of different variations but it's the hand-drawn style just is absolutely mm. stunning yeah very evocative of the era as well and sort of is a good sort of indicator of what to expect from the film but uh yeah you, you they really didn't get any better than this even the ones for Goldfinger I don't think are as good as as this one yeah. these ones yeah. um so on to the film's release okay so the film uh, was released on 10th of October in 1963 at the Odeon Leicester Square. Fleming went, Connery went, Walter Guttel went to it. Um, fans were gathering uh, around Leicester Square, as they do, from uh, 12 noon, uh, waiting to see Bond turn up. So you can see this is probably, well, the first time the Bond crew had really seen this. Um, Dr. No was didn't have any sort of the same sort of excitement around it when it was um, coming to, to to premiere. Broccoli Lee and Saltzman were there as well. And Daniela Bianchi, uh, the Duke and Duchess of Bedford were the Royal Guests of Honour. They normally have Royal Guests of Honour at these things, or they did do in, in, in the olden days. Um, interestingly, that premiere, um, the US national premiere, wasn't hold, uh, held until a whole six months later where it was there was a red carpet in, what was it? The Atlantic at the Astor Theatre in New York. So six months later for another premiere, which seems absolutely ridiculous if you think about it these days. You'd be you'd be surprised if it was a month later these days. But yeah, there's not really a lot of um, uh, sort of images and stuff from that event, as you can imagine, from it being very old. Um, but still, it's early days as well. So it, um, you know, pretty big premiere for second film in a franchise this is still at the period where they're treating treating it weird in america aren't they yeah yeah still doesn't seem taking a bit of time to get over there yeah well they if you remember back to dr no they bungled the release they released into drive-ins and didn't really give it a coast-to-coast release Mm. and so yeah it was took took a while to get to america this time around as well but interestingly one of the people who did see it in america was uh, President John F. Kennedy. And he oh, saw yeah. it at the White House on the 20th of November, 1963. And we all know what happened three days after that. Oh. Doctor Who 
Doctor Who started in uh, in the UK. Um, <laughs> no, I'm, oh, and JFK got assassinated. Um, so yeah, it was the last film he saw. It was interesting. Oh, yeah. hmm. So critics at the times at the time. New York Times said, don't miss it. It's deliciously fantastic and delightfully well played. Time magazine called it an intentional hee-haw of a who'd, at whodunit, an uproarious parody that may become a classic of caricature, which <laughs> to me seems like they didn't take it very seriously. No. Um, and then a critical Stanley Kaufman of the New Republic was not convinced. And he said that Connery was not very good at portraying James Bond. Boo hiss to that. Yeah. But in a retrospective review uh, for Empire, Kim Newman called it one of the best Bond films. He said it's one of the franchise's highlights. And if the dated action can be forgiven, a cracking Cold War story. And I think generally now, anyone that reviews it agrees it's one of the best James Bond films of all time. And yeah, they still talk about it as being the template of the one they go back to. You know, think ahead to... For Your Eyes Only, which we just recently covered, they were talking about From Russia With Love as the template. Mm. Talk about Spectre 2015. They're homaging that film there again. We've got the blonde, blonde henchman throughout the series. It would be a, a, quite interesting if they, if they had to remake any of them. This, would I think, would be a good one to do. Um, I know, obviously, they've done really well with this version but this is a timeless tale, I think, that could easily be updated mm-hmm. to the modern era and would still be a cracking story without trumpling over the original. But um, that's just that's my opinion. So the, the the box office backed it up as well. So if we go back to Doctor No, that took $59.5 million worldwide. And From Russia With Love ends up taking $78.9 million worldwide. So you can see the juggernaut of Bond is getting into action. But that that's it. That's all I can find about the box office takings. Oh, nice. <laughs> uh, well, it wasn't the last time that From, From Russia of Love appeared in the world of multimedia because in 2005, uh, the, a video game was released called James Bond 007 From Russia With Love, uh, which is a third-person shooter video game, as you'd expect from Bond on um, computer game uh, but it did star Sean Connery so it was the last time Sean Connery ever played Bond in any sort of shape or form unless you count Sir Billy <laughs> um, which I think Brendan does um, so the game I I think I did play the game I, I definitely can't remember playing it I did uh, apparently yeah. it was quite good I definitely played it yeah it follows the storyline of the book um, but does add quite a few more scenes to make it a little bit more um, action orientated and game orientated. I think if you actually had a game back in 2005 that followed the story of Ruth Rush Love very closely, probably wouldn't be that exciting. Uh, we're quite good now. It'd be like Hitman now. It's probably similar style that they're going to be making with the new Hitman, yeah. but um, not back then. So um, they changed a few other bits as well. They changed the affiliation of some of the main villains. Um, they threw in a lot of Bond stuff. I mean, it's 2005, so people expected things like Aston Martins to be in there, and there's a jetpack from Thunderball in there. Oh, this was interesting. So uh, one of the changes that they made to it was that they changed the uh, the Spectre organization because of the legal stuff happening around the time. Another mention of legal stuff. So just, <laughs> just stick that in your in your legal list. Um, they changed the name of Spectre to be called Octopus. Oh. Um, 
which is just lazy, isn't yeah. it? Just because <laughs> just because there's a picture of an octopus. And as well as that, there's uh, Red Grant. Uh, is in, he basically helps Bond out for half the game and then the other half of the game, he actually tries to kill him. Um, and the final mission isn't uh, as slow key as it is in From Russia With Love. It's, um, it's a big assault on octopus headquarters, which doesn't sound quite as good. Yeah. The one thing that jumps out at me, I, I do remember, is that Connery sounds his age in it and it, it doesn't it, oh, it really really juxtaposes what the because the character is the same age as he is in the film on screen yeah but his voice is like in his 70s and you can hear it if i can remember right i think didn't someone say he was paid a million dollars to do the voice i'm sure it was was it john cork was telling us yeah because because they wanted to throw in the commentary with it didn't they yeah, I want to say it might even be more, like $5 million. Yeah. yeah, he said that they should have done the commentaries at the same time yeah. when they had him for the game. Yeah. But, mm. you know, that's one of those things, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, the, I mean, it speaks a lot about how what a stripped back sort of uh, simple film this is that we've managed to wrap the everything up so quickly. This must be mm. our shortest of the film specials. Uh, I guess because it's so long ago as well, it's not as m- well written about, perhaps. Well, I think with um, Doctor No, that we were like you're talking about cast and crew and stuff. You've you've covered a lot of them, whereas this one they've used a lot of the same crew. They've used a lot of the same cast. So yeah, it's easier to go into it. It's not it's not an introductory film, is it? It's it's there's more there's more ch- um, the same in it. Yeah, that's true. I suppose the same can be said of like Casino Royale when we did that one. That was a big change of uh, changing yeah. of the guard yeah. as well, wasn't it? So, uh, yeah, likely to be more in depth. But I mean, we've sort of touched upon it at the start. But in terms of the legacy of this film, this is probably one of the most important James Bond films. Obviously, Goldfinger is the one that people talk about as the as the the gold standard. But this one, you know, the first sequel in a major franchise is so crucial to the success mm-hmm. of the future of the franchise because if you ruin the second one or if the second one's not up to scratch then you are in a lot of trouble it, but if you do it right then you're on a springboard to the future and obviously at this point they were making the best book because they were th- doing the that was that's what you do isn't it you do your best thing next um, little did they know there'd be 25 films later yeah what what about you two? What do you think about the legacy of this film? For me, it it is Bond. I think I think you can't you can't move past. I think it's more important than Doctor No. We said how important Doctor No was, but this is far more important. Like you say, they got they needed to get this right for it to continue, and it because it's still making you know waves across Bond now, and across all of Bond. I I I think it's fantastic film. I, when I was watching it, I I I had that thing in my head where i i think it's an amazing film i don't think it's the best bond film i think it's just a really really good film and you can't really say that about a lot of other bond films a lot of other bond films only work in there in the bond bubble but this film if you had another actor in it and didn't call it bond it would be a fantastic film it's such a well created script it's such, it's just really nice and really clean but i would also say that it's still not quite there for me i think it's like it's got all, a lot of the everything it needs to be the bond that we we know and love, but it's it's not quite developed in this all the way yet. Yeah, I think that's yeah. You make a good point there, and I think this the the idea of it working outside of Bond probably speaks a lot about how influenced they were by North by Northwest mm. 
this film is very reminiscent of that film. Helicopter and scene. The, the yeah. helicopter scene, for example. Yeah, the idea of them it being a, a almost a road trip of a movie as well you know someone yes. who's in constant pursuit of uh of of the of the MacGuffin, so as it were i mean that is a is a hitchcock all over it isn't it it's um yeah. yeah and that's why yeah it stood the test of time and couldn't exist beyond the bond franchise for what it is also just talking about the red grant uh fight scene just to go back to it when you watch it, like like I said, in isolation, it's really, really brutal. And I, I, I would argue you can almost draw a, a straight line between that and what we get in Casino Royale in terms of the brutal fight scenes that we have yep. there. Um, because they're just, yeah, it's just really well uh, choreographed. It's very graphic, but it's also there's high stakes involved. Mm-hmm. And that's something that we didn't get for, from James Bond fight scenes for a very, very, very long time. I mean, you could argue maybe the lift scene in Diamonds Are Forever, but mm. I'm not going to compare Diamonds Are Forever to From Russia With Love or <laughs> Casino Royale no. because, yeah, a dreadful, dreadful movie. But yeah, I mean, I don't know what else there is to say about From Russia With Love other than the most important part, <laughs> which is our, our ranking. Yeah. Finally, it's so exciting to do a ranking for one where it doesn't go at the bottom. <laughs> yeah, it's <is> good. <laughs> so, a uh, little recap of where we are so far. We, as the James Bond Eight Said podcast, are ranking the James Bond films as we go through them in alphabetical order. We have done seven of the films so far. From Russia with Love is our eighth film. So. Uh, In at number seven uh, at the moment, and I don't think we'll ever budge from the bottom of the pile, is Casino Royale 1967, followed by Diamonds Are Forever in number six, Die Another Day at number five, A View to a Kill at number four, For Your Eyes Only at number three, Casino Royale at number two, and Doctor No at number one. So who wants to go first and plant their flag in the sand? Well, for me, this is probably my go-to bond. If I was to stick on a bond, it would be this one. And having rewatched it this week again, currently, in my current mood, it's probably my favourite bond above Goldfinger. Therefore, mm. I mean, it must go in at number one, looking at the rest of that list. Um, but yeah, uh, currently, it's my favourite bond. Yeah, I'm going to go next weekly. I'm going to jump in here. I'm going to agree. Having looked at the list um, and having Dr. No and Casino Royale as number one and number two, I think there's only one logical decision, which is to put From Russia With Love at the very top, at our number one as the best Bond film so far um, in our in our ranking. So I'm putting it at number one also. Yeah, I'll go for number one. Best Bond film. Cheers. Apart from Goldfinger. <laughs> interestingly, <laughs> in, interestingly, though, when we did uh, Casino Royale, when we did Doctor No, I had Casino Royale above Doctor No. So f- the question for me now would be, is it better than Casino Royale? Yeah. Mm. And I don't know. Probably. Yeah, I'm going to say at the moment, with it being fresh in the memory, yeah, it might be. But if I was to watch Casino Royale again, I think that one might edge it out. But um, yeah, there we go. That's it. our new number one from Russia with love. Probably going to be short-lived. <laughs> yeah, because we've got Goldfinger and Goldeneye next, haven't yeah. we? Mm. Um. Wheatley, I think I know which one of those will be going at the top for you. <laughs> but Brendan, I think I feel like it could go either way. 
<laughs> or he's, oh yeah, as soon as he's watched it, he won't be shutting up about it. <laughs> right, well then that's everything that wraps it all up. So if people want to get in touch with the show, how do they email us? Podcast at jamesbondaz.co.uk And if they want to get us on social media. At jamesbondaz on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Yeah, so as mentioned, we've got episodes coming up on the letter G and also Goldeneye, Goldfinger, uh, letter H. And then further down the line, um, we'll be getting to episodes about Lazenby and License to Kill and Live and Let Die. Loads of really, really exciting stuff still to come on the James Bond Aid Said podcast in 2022, the 60th anniversary of James Bond itself. Thank you very much for listening. James Bond will return in the James Bond A to Z podcast next week. Cheers. Ciao. James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy, and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley, with music by Tom Ingomels, and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. You won't be needing this, old man. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.